Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 164. The Fun Ideas Podcast is brought to you in part by Lee's Comics. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store. Based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics was named as one of the 21 best online dealers by popoptique.com. To shop the Lee's Comics eBay store, go to eBay and search for Lee's Comics, Inc. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast when you order, and you'll receive a free bonus gift. You remember them from your childhood. Half for the Friendly Ghost, Richie Ridge, Hot Stuff, Baby Huey, Sad Sack and Little Audrey. You read them in comic books and saw them on television and in the movies. Now you can read about how they and other Harvey comic characters were created in two great books from Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions, The Best of Harveyville Fun Times and The Harvey Comic Companion. Both are available from Amazon. The Companion is also available from Fair Manor Media. They are available in hardcover, paperback, and ebook version. Order your copies today. Long title Looking for the Good Times Examining the Monkey Song One by One by Michael A. Ventrella and Mark Arnold. A book that examines each song, gives lots of details about each song, and our own personal opinions. You can find this book on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, and anywhere where good books are being sold. Our webpage is wordpress.monkeys.com, where you can see many of the songs and give your own opinions of them. And we will be discussing this more on Zilch. Christmas, Christmas time is here, and Alvin and the Chipmunks are here again. In 1958, a down-on-the-clock songwriter with an unlikely name of Ross Bagdasarian plunged the last of his family savings on a multi-speed tape recorded and created The Witch Doctor and Alvin and the Chipmunks. This changed the fortune for his family, his record label, and animated cartoon studio. Alvin! The story of Ross Bagdasarian, Liberty Records, Format Films and The Alvin Show by Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions is available from Amazon and Fair Manor Media in hardcover, paperback, and ebook version. Order your copy today. You can now order my latest book, the TTV Scrapbook, from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Bear Manor Media. If you'd like signed copies of this or any of my books, please email me at funideas.mark at gmail.com for further information on how to order directly from me via PayPal. I now have three super articles to write for Back Issue. Super Richie, Super Dagwood, and Super Fan. My Pac-Man book is the next to be coming out, and I'm still working on my Mad and Turtles books. 
Warren Kremer is due out eventually, as is my next Disney book. On today's show, we have a couple whose connection to the Beatles dates back to the days of the cavern in Liverpool in the early 1960s. He became a musician and she became a Liverpool tour guide. Later, they opened a museum called The Beatles Story, which has now spawned a book of the same name. Here they are, Mike and Bernadette Byrne. Hi, this is Mark Arnold with Fun Ideas Podcast, and today we have a couple special guests brought to us courtesy of Charles F. Rosenay. He brings us great guests involved with music. And today we have uh, two creators of the Beatles Story Museum, and they've written a book about it called The Birth of the Beatles Story, and their names are Mike and Bernadette Byrne. How are you today <laughs> i was gonna say yeah. how are you sir but it's like it's a couple <laughs> uh, we're fine thank you very much um yeah we're so good. Far, so good yeah <laughs> so you know i i got a copy of the book from allison and uh uh it was at first i was just gonna skim it because i'm a huge beatles fan i figure i know everything about the beatles and then I got really immersed with the book and I actually read all the way through it. So that lucky you. So I, I know wow. what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> we are impressed. <laughs> so um, I, I guess I, I just have questions based on what I read. So, I mean, if you want all the nitty gritty details of what's in the book, you'll have to buy these, uh, this book when it, uh, it's right. out in May. Is it out now or is it uh, yes. coming up? Yeah, we launched it last uh, last Sunday, week week today ago, okay. and we actually launched it down at the Beatles Story Exhibition. Very good. Okay. Um, so the first question when I started going through the book is, you have tons and tons of memorabilia. Now I found later you got contributions uh, from outsiders when you were doing the museum, but at the time in the early '60s when you first became fans or whatever. Did you just save all this memorabilia from him that you collected all that ended up in the book, or did you have to reacquire things or combination? What happened? Well, most of the stuff that we were well planned to put on display is stuff that I kept because um, if you speak to Mike in a moment, he will tell you that I'm a bit of a hoarder, which is a bit of a problem for him and my kids. But um, finally, it's come in useful. So uh, he can tell you more. Well, Bernard, Bernadette's been hoarding for 60 years, Mark. <laughs> and um, we've always complained about it. But when we started this book, oh boy, were we glad she did. <laughs> I always think that myself. You know, I write books myself on various topics and I have a, a huge library. And it's like, oh, I wish I could get rid yes. of this stuff. But yeah. I need it for what I do. <laughs> You know? yeah, we really do, and, and it's so good that we kept it. We we haven't got anything. Basically, everything you see in the book is is ours, and uh, we haven't borrowed anything. There's new stuff in the exhibition now, but the book goes from our our you know childhood until we opened the exhibition in 1990. It doesn't really go past there. So so it's got the the first 30 years of you know us just going along in our lives. Wow. Okay. And uh, the first thing I thought of when I started reading through the book is why the book now? Why didn't you do it like when you open the museum or any time in between? I mean, what, what's prompting you to do it at this moment? Um, well, the Beatles story, as I say, started 30 years ago and um, it, it developed as Liverpool developed. I mean, Liverpool is 
such a tourist attraction now because of the Beatles. And, um, we, um, the, the exhibition got bought out uh, about 10, 15 years ago. We were, we were all made an offer we couldn't refuse. So even though Bernie and I designed it, it was our idea, everything you see there is, is what we put in it and our design and our ideas. We did have other partners. And 10 years ago, the whole company was bought out by our, our local um, transport authority called Mersey Travel. Mm. And so for the last 10, 15 years, we've been getting on with our lives and other things. I'm a professional musician. I, I've got a band, a rock and roll band. Bernie is a Beatle guide, as you know, you've read the book. Mm -hmm. And he's been guiding. So we've been busy doing that. And... Um, going on holidays and, and but four years ago and I, all those times Mark people have said hey why don't you and Bernie write a book about your experiences and we've thought it wasn't that interesting <laughs> you know and, yeah. and so but one day I woke up and I went oh I, I found I found a load of pictures of the the, the creation of the Beatles story not our own early days just the creation and how we found the space at the Albert Dock, which looked like the cavern, um, how, how we dealt with tourism and, and how we built it. And I thought, oh, I know we could do a book. If someone wants a book, we can do an illustrated book of how we built the Beatles story. So that was it. It was just going to be an illustrated yeah. thing, lots of pictures and captions. Yeah. And then a friend of ours who is actually um, a journalist and a comic book writer, he worked for Marvel Comics. Um, he he was a friend of ours, and uh, he came to our house. He interviewed us over two days. Went away with six hours of tape, and the next two days later, he said, "Mike and Bernie, uh, this is bigger than how you built the exhibition. Mm. This you've got to put your backstory in." So that's how it became a book, and it took it took four years to do. Okay, because yeah, like I said, when I started reading it, I said, "Oh yeah, I, I know about this exhibit." Unfortunately, I haven't gone to it ever, but it was like, "Yeah, it'll be about that uh, fun." And then, yeah, you wrote it very well, and there was more things that I thought would be in it, <laughs> in it, and I just got totally immersed in it. So you know, that's why I was like, "Oh, okay, this is really cool," <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, you see, it wasn't that easy, Mark. Mm -hmm. Believe me, because in the nineteen eighties. Liverpool was a backwater. It had strike action with the Dockers. The city council was militant, did not want to know tourism, didn't want to know the Beatles. Uh, we had a riot in 1981 in Liverpool. <laughs> we, you know, no one wanted to visit Liverpool. But of course, in 1980, when John Lennon was murdered, then started getting a trickle from America and Japan, mm. and Bernie was still was well. Bernie became a guide in eighty three, and she saw the 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 kind of the enthusiasm of overseas visitors. Yeah. Uh, lo locals didn't want to know because they <laughs> the Beatles have gone. They've abandoned us. Mm. You know, so. Oh, that's typical. I mean, you know, you, you talk to any New Yorker, yeah. let's say, and it's like, I've never been to the Statue of Liberty. I've never been yeah, to this. Exactly. That's all right there, you know, but, yeah. you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so we, we, we did it on the background of this 
um, apathy in the 80s towards the Beatles. Mm -hmm. But as you say, um, what, what we wanted to do was we didn't want to write another Beatles book. And we don't think it is because it's got the back, it's got our backstory when we were growing up and went to the cavern and separately, we didn't know each other then. Um, and uh, and then it, the 80s, it tells the story of how tourism developed and the struggle we had raising the money. Which, which is amazing to me because, you know, as a total outsider from the thing and a Beatles fan since the late 70s, I was just saying it's a natural people would want to go to Liverpool and there'd be museums yeah. and statues and all the stuff yeah. that they have now. But, yeah. you, know, you know, it's even amazing to me that even the cavern closed ever, you know, in 73. Right, yeah. I was like, what? You know? yeah. <laughs> that should have been a holy shrine or something. Yeah. Well, they did try to fight it, didn't they? They tried to stop it, but not only did it closed down they knocked it down yeah <laughs> the original they knocked down the one that's there now is a reproduction right right <laughs> so um mike um since you started in the book i'm going to ask questions because i just wrote questions as i was reading through so i have a few questions based on things i read and i was just kind of curious for you to kind of elaborate a little further that you know it's probably stuff that you didn't need to have in the book but i'm just kind of curious so you talk about how wild rory storm and the hurricanes were in the book um i was just wondering if you could elaborate a little more on that i mean you mentioned the thing about the butlins holiday camp where it jumps off the diving board comes up singing or something like that but i mean what were they like on stage because you never hear anything other than ringo was the drummer at least yeah let me let me tell you, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes were bigger than the Beatles in 1960. They Rory was probably he was known as Mr. Showmanship. Yeah, he, he they they wore great suits, you know, they all looked smart. But Rory was tall, blonde, uh, very athletic. He was in the athletics team, you know, he, he could run. And sometimes he had to run because the Teddy Boys down at Butlins would chase him because all the all their girlfriends fancied Rory you know <laughs> so sometimes he, he, you know his fast running came in but as I say he was the top band if you will know and, and Beatle fans will know that when you see the Star Club poster of the Beatles and Rory Storm in Hamburg at the Kaiser Keller Rory Storm's name is above the Beatles right. you know <laughs> so at the time Rory was big uh, the other bands who were big was the Big Three, um, the the Blue Jeans and the Remo Four, and um, you know other bands were all at the same level. You know the Jerry and the Pacemakers. There were so many bands. I mean, there were three hundred and fifty bands in Liverpool. <laughs> Incredible. You know, everyone was playing every night because there were coffee bars and concert halls and anywhere that there was a you know, a room with a stage that was a band on every, you know, three, four nights a week. So, as I say, Rory, Rory to me, he, he was my hero before I saw the Beatles. And I went down to Butlins, as you mentioned. Um, Butlins was a holiday camp, which was open for seasons. So Rory had the summer season playing there every night. And, you know, um, it, was, it was just... A great time, a great time to grow up and, and see your heroes on stage. What type of stuff did they play? The same stuff Beatles did? Or was there 
I know they sang boys because Ringo has said so in interviews. <laughs> well, that, that, that was a big thing with Ringo. Uh, Rory didn't take all the glory. I think in the middle of Rory's set, he would say, and now, ladies and gentlemen, it's Ringo star time. <laughs> so Rory goes off the stage and Ringo sings either boys or Honey Don't. He used to do Honey Don't, Carl Bergen song. That's cool. And, and um, so it would be Ringo. And Ringo was always, you know, a flamboyant drummer. You know, he swung, he, he always flicked the drumsticks around. So, you know, he loved show business anyway. And I think that's what the Beatles saw in him uh, as opposed to Pete Best. Pete Best, very quiet, you know, head down all the time. Ringo was swinging, you know, he was laughing. And the thought his personality is going to fit in with the Beatles more than Pete Best. Hmm. So, um, Mike, then you go on and you talk about your musical experiences. I mean, you talk about bands you were in called the Thunderbirds, and then you were in one called Them Grimble, <laughs> and then the Roadrunners, which was probably your biggest success, I would think, and then the Chords. I mean, uh, did you... I don't know how to ask this. I mean, it's like, obviously, everybody wants to be the Beatles, but did you think you would get any glimpse of the success or fame as the Beatles in all your various groups, or were you just having mm. fun? No, no, I, I, I wanted to be famous, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I still do. <laughs> no, no, that's enough. Uh, having a book, that's great. No, no, what was, I mean, I think we all, we all, you know, any ambitious lad in a group, uh, particularly the lead singers, which I was, you know, we, we, we love showing off, I suppose. And um, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to get better all the time. Mike and the Thunderbirds, that was my first group. Very, quite amateurish. Didn't want to go anywhere. I <laughs> go somewhere. So I met, I left them and joined them Grimbles. Them Grimbles had a totally different attitude and it wasn't just a beat group. It was a six-piece um, six band with um, Hammond organ and saxophone. So we were doing uh, a bit more rhythm and blues. We were doing Ray Charles. We were doing Mose Allison, um, Lambert Hendricks and Ross. Oh, yeah. Uh, slightly, <laughs> slightly jazzy, you know? Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> and, I and I love that. You know, I really love that kind of music. But... But we had a real awakening when we got to Germany. Mm. Uh, in the winter of 1964, I think I was 21 just, and we we went, we set off in a converted ambulance, uh, immediately broke down. <laughs> um, we, the, the ambulance, the wheel fell off halfway down to the coast, mm -hmm. fixed. Got to Germany, and we were working not in Hamburg, but a place called Kiel, which was even further north and colder. And we, we get there in the middle of the night. There's another Liverpool band playing there. They were leaving. We were playing. So we get on, and we, we did a week. We, we, we played a week, five hours a night. I mean, this was, this was a killer. I mean, your voice, being the singer, my, my voice disappeared after... Three days, I couldn't speak. Mm. So anyway, at the end of the week, myself and the organist, the leader, we went to see the boss for our money. <laughs> so we, we knocked on his door and he sat behind his big desk and he's a big German guy. 
He says, what do you want? <laughs> could, could we have some money, please? <laughs> no. <laughs> You're not getting any money. No money. <laughs> you are a Scheiser Capelli. Oh, wow. And, uh, I don't know if you want me to translate that, but you can believe it. You can, it. but uh, yeah, I know what it means. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so he says, you, you don't play this rubbish. You play Pretty Woman. You play Chuck Berry. Then I pay you. Mm. <laughs> the, next night, the next night, I'm going, Pretty Woman. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we, we stayed and we were there for a month and we got paid. Um, and so, so that was all right. So we did a couple of years as them Grimbles, went back to Germany a few times. and um, But we didn't get a recording contract. So mm. I then moved on to the Roadrunners, who were an established Liverpool group. They'd done the Star Club. They they were bigger, uh, but they were breaking up anyway. So I joined as a singer, and we, we got a recording contact with Fontana Records, right. recorded a couple of sides, but they didn't get released, you know. So oh. I was a released recording artist, but always wanted to get better. And, you know, I always had good groups and all that, you know, and then that took me to the end of the 60s and meeting Bernadette. Right. And I was happy. <laughs> now, one thing you said, in the, uh, you know, I, I was going to say the next step is you met Bernadette, which I have written right here, but um, clarify this is when did you discover that your flat was the same one where John and Cynthia lived for a time? Ah, well... <laughs> That's amazing to me. <laughs> what, what, what a coincidence. Um, yeah. We didn't learn about that until Bernadette, Bernadette became a Beatle guy. Wow, so you didn't know at the time. I thought no. you might have known at the time. I was like, wow. No, no. And that, that came about, the flat was, it was a, you know, it was a friend of Brian Epstein's flat, you know. And um, I, I, I actually got thrown out of home, you see, because I home late every night getting in at four o'clock in the morning my dad basically said Michael you know you either give up the group or you'll have to go <laughs> so I went <laughs> I mean he was he was great about it no my dad was great so supportive but anyway because we were doing you know with the band every night and we were going down to the Blue Angel Club the Blue Angel was owned by Alan Williams and um, we would be there till four o'clock in the morning, you know, just with hands. So, so I bought this flat, and it ha turned out well. You, you, you tell Mark how, how you came across it. Um, it was when well, you were a guide, yeah. wasn't it? Well, yes, I found out that um, researching, you know, I knew the Beatles reasonably well, but mm -hmm. I didn't know an awful lot about John and Cynthia. Um, Although you know, we we there was a lot of gossip going around that uh, they'd had they were going to have a child and all that business when Julian was born. But just before, um, I, I think he'd been thrown out of wherever he was living. He was living in Gambia Terrace with some of the other students from his art college. Mm -hmm. he then um, he must have met Cynthia, obviously, and as their romance blossomed, they had to get somewhere to live, and so. Uh, they, they, like us, rented, or like Mike, rented the flat from, I don't know who they rented it from. I think it was through Brian, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, maybe it through Brian. Brian. Yeah. 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 And um, it, it was just a coincidence that we found out. <laughs> it wow. certainly didn't look like it does on the pictures in the book. Right. <laughs> that was, um, 
that was a surprise to Mike even oh, wow. <laughs> when he came back That's from amazing. Germany. Wow. <laughs> so um, then the story takes a turn to Bernadette. So I'm going to ask you a few questions in a row. <laughs> uh, so Bernadette, you're basically a music fan all your life. Is that how you got interested in hanging out at the cavern and hanging yes. out at the club? Yeah, I was brought up in a very, when I say musical family, my parents were ballroom dancers, um, which was very popular at the time. Mm-hmm. And to, um, well, we were, as, as kids, my sister and I were sent to the local dance school to learn how to dance. So I, um, I mean, even today, I still love, if I hear the rock and roll music, my feet are tapping and I can't help it to be like <laughs> dance, you know. But it's kind of something that's in your blood, I think. But my mum my, my and dad were ballroom dancing champions at the time and they were doing competitions and I used to love the dresses my mum wore, you know, they were all lovely ostrich feathers and things like that. And it was so sort of suave and, you know, very enjoyable in every way, really, dancing. But uh, obviously, as a teenager, we sort of developed our own tastes mm-hmm. and started to go to the cinema and go to the local dance halls. And it's when really after rock and roll, um, when was it Rock Around the Clock appeared on our cinemas in England and Bill Haley was there. And my mom used to work in the cinema in those days. And she was at a cinema one day when she came home. She was saying how awful it was. They were ripping up the seats of the cinemas you know you may have heard the uh, kids went wild Mm -hmm. Uh, anyway obviously from that um a lot of the boys were were in groups but they started to watch the american singers like elvis and little richard and people like that and so along with that wherever we went to our youth clubs or whatever we grew into that music and all enjoyed it so we'd go to see the groups who were performing in england Mm -hmm. uh, obviously in liverpool at the time and uh, that was what led us to seeing the Beatles for the first time. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, it's just a, a story that's been written and rewritten a hundred times. But, you know, this is just our personal experience. Right. Now, for you, saying personal experience, what was it like seeing the Beatles for the first time? I know you said they were still in their leathers and things like that. But mm-hmm. what was it like? Uh, just, it was you very know. exciting. It was, um, I don't know, to be right, I don't even remember what I wrote in the book now. But um, we were um, going to the youth clubs, the local youth clubs at the time. And we decided one night we would go to see this group. Um, who was a bit of an Elvis impersonator, in fact, wasn't he? His name was Farron, Farron and the Flamingos, and we thought we'd go to see them. But they were playing at a club, which was in a part of Liverpool, that I don't know what you'd call it in in America, but we used to say it was a bit of a rougher, run-down area. And uh, we'd been forbidden to go to any clubs in that area. So we went anyway. We told our parents we were going somewhere else. And... (laughs) secretly took a, a bus out to a place called Hilton Hall. And that's the first time we saw the Beatles. Uh, when they came on stage, they were on last. Um, he, uh, there was the, the guy we'd gone to see was on, I think, in the middle. Jerry and the pacemakers were on the bill. Then mm. the Beatles, who had just come back from Hamburg. And we were, um, we were sort of awestruck when we first saw thought how strange they looked because they <laughs> leather jackets on, cowboy boots. Uh, except Paul, he had like a reefer jacket on. But the thing we really noticed was John Lennon, we thought looked like Eddie Cochran. Um, and e- Eddie Cochran was really our favorite sort of, of the American stars. You know, we thought he was fabulous. We loved his music. And so as soon as we saw the Beatles, we thought, wow, you know, we've got to go and see them again. Mm. 
um, that, that's the first time we saw them. And um, I don't know if, if we put it in the book, but uh, it ended up a bit of a disaster that night because yeah. <laughs> the ladies' cloakroom, somebody had had a started a fight in there. The sink <laughs> ripped off the wall. Uh, it also was part of the cloakroom and there was water everywhere. And when we went to get our coats, used to hang them in this cloakroom, uh, my friend's coat, uh, her name was Joan, had been stolen. And uh, we were both standing, about two 15-year-olds standing outside in the cold and wet, crying, wondering how on earth we were going to tell our parents what had happened. Anyway, uh, Jerry and the pacemakers was great. And they came out and they said, if you wait for us to put the gear away, we'll give you a lift home. So that's how the night ended. But once we'd seen we couldn't wait to get back and see them again. Wow. <laughs> was going to the cavern. Now, um, what was the cavern like? I mean, you, you obviously you can go to today's cavern, but I mean, the original cavern, I mean, could you, this is silly, but I've always thought about this. Could you breathe in there? And also, did it smell in there? <laughs> it definitely did. In fact, they used to spray disinfectant all around the cavern before people came for a go because it stank of cigarette smoke, beer. No beer. No, it wasn't no beer. beer. It was, um, it was the, <laughs> the lads who drunk the beer elsewhere uh, would go into the men's toilets. And, well, I won't tell you what kind of a smell came from there, but it wasn't very nice. <laughs> and, and, and it was uh, the smell of hot dogs. Yes, and coffee. Oh. Smoke, because you can smoke yeah. then in places. So you yeah. have <laughs> I mixed these smells. Yeah, and then the and it, damp heat because it was so hot. Uh, the condensation would literally run down the walls and your clothes would be sticking to you, really, you know, if you had a <laughs> on or whatever. That's pretty grotesque, really, doesn't it? I Ray? know. That, that's why I always <laughs> think about it. I go, wow, it'd be great to see the Beatles back then. You just think of how, yeah. you know, <laughs> the situation, it, yeah. like, especially like when Brian Epstein went down for the first time, since he's kind of a posh gentleman, you know, he comes down there's like, what the yeah. F is this? You know? Know. <laughs> he came down for the first time. I remember I was just leaving to go back to work in a bitty damp state, really. My hair stuck to my head and everything. But um, Brian, stood in the doorway. Uh, the, it had sort of these steps going down into the, the cavern, which was down underground. And uh, as he came down the steps, he just looked so out of place. He had a very <laughs> a camel hair coat, we used to call them. And he was with Joe, was it Joe Conway? Alistair. Alistair Taylor was with oh, him. Yeah. And um, we didn't know who they were, but then Bob Wooler, who was the DJ at the cavern, gave out an announcement. Um, you, you know, we'd like you all to welcome um, the manager of NEMS, the owner of NEMS, Mr. Brian Epstein, you know. But we realised what he was there for. We just thought it must have been somebody from the council coming to close it down. <laughs> so, um, it, was, it was a memorable day, I must say. But uh -huh. I thought he must have thought when he entered this smoke-filled, vile-smelling cellar. <laughs> it was yeah. horrible. I guess uh, the appeal of the Beatles and others, you know, transcended it all because, I mean, you and Brian Epstein and others returned yeah. many times. Exactly. To... <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, it was. It, well, it is. Once we once we'd seen them, you know, they really did capture your admiration, boys and girls. You know, it wasn't just mm. girls that loved them; it was the boys as well. And they they just. Uh, took the city by storm, really, didn't they? Yeah, and, you know, this this cavern thing was in a very little street, Matthew Street, mm -hmm. uh, 
high, high um, warehouses each side. Yes, and it was the fruit exchange area. And so the smell of fruit as you walk down might have been fresh or even rotting fruit. <laughs> bananas. You can smell it. But as you got towards the cavern, basically you, you could feel the bass of the bass guitar coming through the cobbles. You know, because they played so loud. So it resonated through the cobbles. And then the next thing you saw was this kind of a, a fog coming out of the entrance. <laughs> it was it was the condensation, the heat, and that smell. It, it really you. But, you know, you didn't care because we were all, what, 16, 17 years old, and you knew once you were in that place... You were going to have a great time. And, and the other great thing, Mark, particularly lunchtime sessions that I did a lot of and Bernadette did a lot of, the lunchtime sessions always had the best of the 350 groups on. Mm. One day it would be Rory on, next day the Birchers, next day um, Jerry and the Pacemakers, the Remo Four, and, of course, the Beatles. Mm. So every week you would see the top 10 bands mm. of Liverpool and you got in for the equivalent of what a shilling okay. which is 5p now we, and I don't know what that is in sense, in sense mm. but it's a small change yeah <laughs> wow <laughs> just amazing you know looking back on it you know it's like <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> Nowadays, they'd probably shut the cavern down, you know, for health regulations oh, yeah. or whatever. You know? well, at the time. Well, I think health and safety would have closed it down. Yeah, because, yeah. <laughs> you know, when they had all-night sessions on, I mean, Bernadette went to all-night sessions. I played on a couple. And by 4 o'clock in the morning or whatever, there was 900 kids in there. Mm. 900. I'm really, safety <laughs> probably yeah. and by that time it was so wet i think it blew it used to blow the electrics yeah so <laughs> it would fuse on stage mm. and whoever was on stage had to ad lib yeah mm. and chat to the audience mm. Interesting. Yeah, it's it all good fun and Bernie, one more question. This is really important because this intrigued me. It's like is you is this correct? You dated Paul once. And then yeah. you dated George many times and actually became his girlfriend for a while. Um, what were they like back then? I mean, everybody always knows after they became famous what they're like. And they have, you know, a persona. But, I mean, were they much different back then? Or what were they like? Um, they, were, they were great. They were just like any other normal boy you would go out with when you were 17 or 18. <laughs> they were They were a couple of years older than me. But, um, yeah, they were just like. I don't know really. <laughs> it's, very, it's very hard to say that it was. They were not just very young teenagers as we were mm -hmm. as friends, and I, I guess I was just lucky that mm -hmm. I was enough to go out with them. I don't know. I don't know why. It's um. I really don't know. <laughs> I didn't, no, well, it's, it's actually kind of interesting because, I mean, for me, you know, it's just interesting for every girl back then. There's probably yeah. jealousy, at least, oh, you know, yeah. saying, oh, yeah. oh, my God, you got to date George, you know. It's like, yeah, I, you know. I got some very strange, unpleasant letters from the fans. Uh, it was it was a bit weird, really, a bit frightening at times because uh, they were starting to become more well known. 
And uh, particularly when I was out with George, um, he used to get a bit upset. You know, you'd go to the cinema and girls would recognize him. And as we were trying to leave sometimes, you know, they'd be asking for autographs and he'd just sort of usher me down and out and away um, because he just, he, he didn't like it. It's, I know it seems strange to think he, he wouldn't like it. When you see them in America, you mm. think they're all enjoying it. But the, the fan hysteria became rather frightening. Mm. And it was just uh, very weird, really. Well, I, mean, I, guess it just, I guess it just deter- is the circumstance. I mean, if you're on stage, that's one thing. But if you're being in private at the cinema like you're saying you know you don't want to be hassled you know <laughs> so no. I, I get it no. you know? right but uh, when i was hairdressing we were on the the second floor we were above we myself the salon i worked at was above nems not the nems that you read about in all the books we were above the very first record store that nems opened ah, okay. a road called great charlotte street and when the george would pick me up from the salon if i was working late at night school or something and the girls would hang out of the window. And I used to say to them, don't do it. Don't, don't be looking out the window. They did. <laughs> and, um, and I knew it would get George very agitated if, uh, if he saw them. But luckily, I don't think he did. <laughs> you had the, I mean, the situation, Mark, when after Love Me Do had been released in Liverpool, and a lot of the girls uh, didn't buy the record, thinking if we don't buy it, they won't get famous yeah. and they won't. So, yeah. um, but, wow. uh, but obviously they did um, but as soon as, please, as soon as Please Please Me came out and went to number one yeah. that was it and, yeah. and then it was in a car and you went to George invited you to go to a show yeah. in Southport yeah Tell them it was, um, yeah they were performing at a place called the Floral Hall in Southport and it had been agreed that um, if I could get a lift there which I did from my sister, I would meet his mum because he's obviously it was close to where he lived as well. So he, his mum would come along to see the show and I was to meet her. And then we were to be um, taken back to Liverpool by George in his car. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Tony Bramwell. Mm-hmm. Tony yeah. Bramwell was a helper in those days. He was a good friend of George's. And he, um, he used to get all the gear in for him and get all the guitars ready and packed up. And the idea was he would take his car to the stage door. Uh, we'd be in the car and then um, Tony would drive up and George could get in. Mm. On this particular night, when it happened, a crowd had gathered around the stage door. Um, Tony got the car. We got us into the car, drove up, and um, the, the girls literally descended on the car because they knew George was going to be coming into it. Uh, George ran out trying to get away from the girls, as it were, uh, in the car, and the door slammed on his arm. Um, as he was driving away, because uh, Tony had left the engine running, he got out and got out the way quick. George jumped in, and as the door slammed, it caught his arm, and he had a rather badly bruised arm for quite a while. But um, when I say he swore, uh, <laughs> the language choice, not to be repeated to your listeners, but uh, <laughs> I can tell you. <laughs> But uh, anyway, that was how Beatlemania really started to show itself, you know. And after that, I, I did get a few not very pleasant letters from other girl fans who sort of sent the, these letters to, to the shop where I worked, mm-hmm. uh, sort of saying, you know, you, who do you think you are going out with George and all this? Oh, wow. <laughs> well, anyway, that was it. 
I, I assume you, because of just being around, uh, you got to see John and Ringo and Pete even off stage mm-hmm. and just casually, not just them singing on stage. Is that true? They did. Yeah, we did. Uh, I don't know if we put it in the book about the Beatles, Al, did we? Um, yeah. we, we you, talk, you talk mainly on that that period about Paul and George. You don't really talk about yeah. the others. That's why my question. Well, I mean, well, yeah, did you hang out talk- with the rest or were they too yeah. busy doing oh, other things? Well, at the Blue Angel, we did later on at the Blue Angel, mm-hmm. but um, and we used to go to a cafe in um, Seal Street called um, Joe's Cafe. All the groups used to gather there, and some of the girls who were friendly with them did as well. Mm. But um, the, the funniest thing I remember really about John was he was very sarcastic, whatever he, he'd have fun with it nastily. Uh, some people thought it was a bit offhand and a bit, you know, unpleasant. But you, you had to take him with a pinch of salt, as we say. We, he was um, being friendly. Uh, we made a little doll one time for, I think it was Paul's 21st, and the doll was um, knitted, and it was shaped like a beetle. So it had little antennae. It had um, a green and white striped shirt, which we made with my friend's school blouse, uh, a little metal guitar around its neck. And um, anyway, we, we wanted to give this knitted beetle to Paul uh, for his birthday. So we knocked on the door of the band room and Paddy Delaney, you may have heard of him. He was the doorman then at the cabin. Mm-hmm. He stand guard outside because the fans would always try to get in. And it's the only place the Beatles could go and hide, as it were, in between sets. So uh, he knew us from going down regularly. And we said, it's Paul's birthday. We want to give him this. So we, my friend and I went in. Um, we no sooner, we gave the doll proudly to Paul, who thought it was lovely and said, yes, this is great. But... Um, then suddenly John piped up from the corner. I didn't even see him properly. He was sort of sitting in the corner and he went, you might have knitted us something decent like a guitar case. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was just a sense of humor. And, um, you know, it was just, fortunately, you know, we, we didn't take offense and yeah. uh, we went. So it was um, that kind of thing. He could be very sort of sarcastic sometimes if he, just if he felt like, I think, you know, it's just... Mm-hmm. Never knew which way to take John. They, you know, he was sort of friendly one minute and then sarcastic the next. So, right. but nature. Yeah, and he and he used in the early early days before Ringo, of course, he Stuart Sutcliffe was in the group. So you know, he, John would spend a lot of time with Stu when they were socializing, you know, mm. Paul would be out there with the girls, Ringo, oh, Ringo wasn't there then. Um, mm. John, John and Stu and their, their student mates, you know, would hang out together. And so, so, so that they'd, they'd um, be in separate little groups, if you like. Mm. Um, but, but you'd always see them around the cavern because right. it was small, you know, so they, you couldn't help bump into mm the groups all the time yeah. and and this went out on for two years mm-hmm. until you know until please please me and and they went right and i know that's kind of like when the relationship with george drifted apart and everything else yes, and you yes. two met you got together and had a family <laughs> blah 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 um <laughs> uh, now there's a little gap in the story understandably um but uh after the Beatles broke up in the early 70s, in 1970, did you follow their solo careers or were you like busy having family and well, um, past at that moment? Well, we did, but we did. But 1980, as we said earlier, changed everything really. Right. Where, where John, well, 
Well, I, I think we kind of followed them a little bit. You know, as you say, 70, they break up, and it wasn't, wasn't a very nice breakup. And um, so they all do their own thing, as we, as we all know, you know, because Yoko was in John's life, and, right. you know, Linda was in Paul's life. Ring, Ringo goes off and makes films, you know, and George became the Quiet Beetle again, but was his own thing and because he was the most successful with um, All Things Must Pass or you know, the concept of Bangladesh but w- one funny situation with, with Bernadette we'd been going out for a year or so and we were in Liverpool walking walking one night coming from the shop Bernadette and we were walking back to the car and coming the other way was George Harrison Mal. and Mal Evans yeah. <laughs> So, so this was 65. Yeah. Um, they'd just come back from America. They'd done Shea Stadium, made a f- couple of films, you know, things like that. Right. So we bump into each other. I didn't know George that well, but of course. So he recognized Bernadette and she'll <laughs> tell you this of what she said to him. Oh, I'm never going to live this down. I, I actually said to him, Hi, how are you doing? What, what have you been doing lately? <laughs> That's great. I can't even remember. I can't remember Mike sort of. I can yeah. see Mike's face. Like, You've been working. Yeah. <laughs> what have you been doing? Oh, dear. That's very funny. All I was worried about was I, ha- I said I had a silly hat on. I had these yeah. nice hats had sort of like a furry mm. bonnet with like little bunny ears on the top. Yeah. And that's I was thinking about I'm oh dear thinking. this famous Beatles seen me with this silly hat on <laughs> <laughs> but, no, 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 it was it was it was really great and as yeah. you say we we then had had a couple of kids and mm-hmm. the 70s went on I went into cabaret and theater then it was doing looking after the kids you know yeah, and uh, but then 1980 everything changed and 1983. Bernadette became a Beatle guide and the Beatles came back into our lives. Hmm. Okay. One more question before that old days though, just that seventies period. Did you ever go to the cavern again prior to their original closing in 73 or no, after the Beatles no. left, you're done. No, no, we didn't. No, no. Just curious. You know. all, all our best friends had broken up all, you know, all our best friends in groups, they'd all broken up and they were doing the same as us, you know, settling yeah. down, having families. We stayed in touch with a few, didn't um, we? Yeah. You know, the, the bigger groups, the well, more well-known ones went into what we call cabaret in England. Um, that was, you know, big, big theatre like type clubs, you know, with having serving meals. And so they turned into cabaret groups. So they, they weren't the rock and roll groups that we saw at the cavern. Mm. They were very, very kind of smooth and a, a bit, I don't know. Cabaret. It, well, just, just cabaret, you know. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So obviously you got re-involved with the Beatles, as you were saying. Uh, now the first venture you did is called Beatles City. Is that the correct one? If yeah, I remember, right. yeah, yeah, yeah and, uh, but... it was about 1984 or something like that that we're talking about that it opened mm-hmm. up and it was kind of a flop. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes, it was a flop, yeah. and, uh, which it was nothing to do with us, the building of Beatles City. That was, um, okay. it was organized by a local radio, radio station called Radio City. Uh, it was their idea, 
Um, it opened in '84. It was it was actually yeah it was it was nicely designed. It was big. Um, some great memorabilia. I had some. The memorabilia was amazing. You know, they had a million dollars worth of memorabilia which they bought from at two Sotheby's sales. And uh, okay. the memorabilia was amazing. But this is 1984 on a backdrop of Liverpool not being a very popular place to go to. Uh, it was in the wrong place and it was the wrong time, you know. And okay. it had stuff in it that, well, sorry, it had memorabilia, but it didn't have any soul. It didn't have any atmosphere mm. uh, and didn't really have anything for a non Beatle fan. Mm. And for a commercial venture, you've got to. You've got to draw, work, yeah. you know, you've got to have 100,000 people a year coming through to pay the bills. And that, and it wasn't like that. Hmm. I became involved with it by mistake. Um, <laughs> in, in 84, Bernie became a Beatle guide. Uh, she was coming home every night going, oh, I've taken, you know, Italians, Japanese, Americans out today. And uh, she was, you know, I was really interested in that. And my job at the time was working for a local newspaper on promotions. Mm-hmm. And so part of my job was going to the Garden Festival, which, which had opened. Um, Cavern Walks opened with the new thing and Beetle City opened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, but after two years, as you say, Beetle City was a flop. It was closed. It was up for sale. And by a quirk of fate, I ended up working in a in a place called Transworld Festival Gardens, which was um, a, a, a six month show with entertainments, fabulous gardens, but entertainments every day. So my job was events manager. So I, I had to organize events, uh, you know, 10 hours a day seven days a week so that was that was fine because I, I was used to doing that kind of thing um but at the end of the season the, the the where I worked was closing down and wasn't a success so so there were four managers there was me the events there was the garden there was the finance and there was the engineering guy we, we were all gathered together in this office and um they said, sorry, we're closing next week. You're all out of a job. And I, oh, no. Anyway, this guy went, oh, hang on, there is one job going. And I put, put my hand up and said, I'll have it. <laughs> and I didn't even know what it was. And what it was, they had bought the, well, bought Beatles City. And the job was managing Beatles City. So next week, I'm sitting, this is 1986, I'm sitting in the managing director's seat in Beetle City, but it was failing, you know. Mm-hmm. But by, you will have read in the book that we yep. took, it, took it to Dallas. Yeah, in- which is very strange, but I kind of vaguely remember it went to Dallas, you know, but for me, Dallas or Liverpool, because I was in California at the time, it's like still quite a ways away. <laughs> I graduated high school in uh, 84 so you know we're talking I'm in early college at this point in 86 and I don't have a lot of money so (laughs) (laughs) well Dallas was the strangest place to open a Beatles exhibition (laughs) isn't it the Bible Belt yeah yeah part of it yeah they were burning Beatles records. Yeah. But yep. the reason it, there, the reason it was because the guy who bought Beatles City and took it did a deal with South Fork Ranch. Mm-hmm. South Fork Ranch were a third partner 
in opening Beetle City in, in Dallas. That's amazing. <laughs> so Very strange. But the great, thing, the great thing was the guy who bought it wanted me to go because no one else, you know, knew about the Beatles and knew about the exhibition. But he also wanted Bernadette to go because she was a Beatle guy and because she'd gone out with George Harrison. And <laughs> when we got to Dallas, Bernadette was like this celebrity because wow. <laughs> he'd gone out with George. Crazy. And, and we, we had 40,000 visitors in three months. So it convinced us you know, that, ooh, the market's, ooh, there. The market's yeah. there. We've got to get back to Liverpool. We've got to open up in Liverpool. Beatles City didn't go back to Liverpool. It got broken up, split right. all the world now. Um, anyway, so we got back to Liverpool with without a job, by the way. I was I was job. <laughs> and uh, it was Christmas Eve. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, strange Christmas. Anyway. I went straight to the tourist board and I said, Beetle City's not coming back, Mr. Tourist Board. Um, mm. What are we going to do about it? And at the time, again, the apathy to the Beatles even extended to the head of the tourism board at the mm. time, who really wasn't interested in Beatles. You know, unbelievable the things we were up against. Mm. You know, I, I, I persisted and I said, you know, I, I, I went in every day. I said, come on, we've got a Beatle exhibition. Well, and, the, big, uh, the big question is, why? <laughs> why? What propelled you to keep going when you're uh, faced with uh, apathy and negligence and, you know, um, disinterest or whatever? <laughs> I know. I, I, okay. I, I guess I it's... What um, we saw from the tourist board. We saw the visitors that were there, weren't they? Looking for something. I, I've always liked a challenge, Mark. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Yeah. That's why it married me. <laughs> this is true. Uh, every day is a challenge. Um, so, honestly, I, I just persisted. And to get rid of me, this, this head of tourism gave me £1,500 and said, go and do a feasibility study on why Liverpool needs a Beatle exhibition. And I looked at him like, are you, are you from this planet, you know? <laughs> I took the money because I needed it. <laughs> and um, so we did, this, we did a, this feasibility study, and then we did a business plan. And then I came home one day and went, tell you what, let's do it ourselves. I don't want to work for anyone else anymore. Mm. And, and so we spent the next two years raising the money, and Bernie, Bernie started designing it on the back of a piece of paper. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we, we didn't have a clue, Mark, honestly. Wow. We never managed anything in our lives. I was a good <laughs> man. Bernie knew the business, you know, she knew the Beatles. Um, and we went into it blind. Wow. And our, but our ideas, our ideas we were good. Today, and and what, made it, what made Beatles' story work yeah. was the fact that we'd had this experience with Beetle City. So we saw what didn't work. So instead of our exhibition being like Beetle City, showcases and memorabilia, ours was going to be an experience. You were going to be taken back into time. You were going to see it, hear it, and feel what it was like to be there. Right. Um, so, well, I mean, thanks to your persistence, we can all enjoy it. And if you haven't been there like myself, I, at least I can enjoy it through the book. That's what fascinated me because I haven't been there and I go, wow, you know, but there's, there's more to the story that I'm curious about. And it's like, um, you, you said this 
uh, I guess this is part of your persistence and your personality and everything else. Um, you met up with Derek Taylor and then later Neil Aspinall just to kind of see what their thoughts were about it and engage the, the room as it were. And, uh, but you said to both of them on both occasions according to the book, I don't think you can stop me. Can you? And it's like, wow, are you inviting a lawsuit or what? You know, I thought that was pretty ballsy of you. So. You are right. Um, I, that was my, my gut feeling all the time. You can't stop me. And I think we had gone so far in the preparation of this. We'd raised, you know, 500,000 pounds. We'd, we'd, got the designs done the designs look good um people were going this looks great yes it will be a success if you do it the way you are telling us you're going to do it so when i met neil as well it was first I, I wrote to them they they ignored me i wrote i rang and eventually derek taylor uh neil's right hand man i would say at the time you know, agreed to see me and, and met me in the crypt of St. Martin's in the field in London. You know, it was like a secretive meeting. Yeah. I said, how will I recognize you? He said, I'll have the guardian under my arm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, was, it was like you know, a spy thing, you know. So I, go down, I go down with my plans and full of trepidation. And Rick was a charming man. Mm-hmm. Absolutely charming. He listened to me. He looked at the plans. And I think what came over was our genuinely, our genuine love of Liverpool, uh, our knowledge of the Beatles, and the fact that we were doing it for the people of Liverpool. We were doing it for the fans. We weren't doing it for money. We weren't suits. We weren't corporation, you know. And, And I think in the end, that's what made him go back to Neil and say, um, this might be okay, Neil. Uh, why don't you meet them? <laughs> so that took, you know, that took another couple of months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you finally had your opening day, well, this very month, but uh, was it 32 years ago in 1990? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and then you said you had Jerry Mars, of course, with Jerry and the Pacemakers, Bob Wooler, the DJ, Alan Williams, the Beatles' first manager, I guess, and uh, Bill Harry, the writer. Um, uh, so I guess it had a pretty good turn up. And you said in the book that it was still struggling for a couple, three years, even then. I mean, did you think of giving up even then after you're done? Or did you just keep plugging yeah. away? <laughs> no, we, we, we never gave up. We, we knew because at that time, um, you know, Bernie was working. Well, she had written the story. She'd researched every bit of picture she'd done all that um i'd done the other side i'd raised the, the finance um and was meeting with the designers every day at downer and what what oh and of course sorry the liverpool suddenly was waking up to the beatles you know mm-hmm. the one had reopened um there were tours every day. The Magical Mystery Tour was going around. And, and of course... And what, what was, <laughs> it's on my oh, Cheers. <laughs> and, um, you know, um, the Albert Dock, where we built where we built this, which was um, the Albert Dock itself is a 
a group of grade one listed warehouses built in 1846, redeveloped in 1984. And what it was doing, it was attracting supposedly 6 million visitors a year to the dock and, and everything that was going on. Because besides the Beatles story, it had a maritime museum and the Tate Gallery of the North opened in 1986. So by 1990, we were pretty confident that we would be successful. Mm. What we didn't know, that we had a recession. Mm. 1990, uh, the year we opened, a recession started in England. The same year or the year before, there was the Lockerbie Air disaster. And what that did killed all the American tourists. Mm. They, the Americans right. would, not, would not come to England. So we lost all the American tourists, um, you know, understandably. They were nervous and, you know, the world was in a state. And I think, there, wasn't it, there was the first Gulf War as well. Yeah, yeah. All this happened around yeah. 1990. Mm. And it, so we, we, had a, we did struggle. We struggled for two, three years. We broke even after three years. I mean, you know, this is a new business and it's, it's not a corner shop. You know, it's a, it's, we, it cost us £700,000. Um, no new business makes money in the first new three years. Mm-hmm. So we were convinced that it would be a success. And of course, after four years, we were getting the business. We, and then, then it just went on and on. And we were getting 150,000 visitors. And then, as I say, we sold out in um, 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, years ago, they got 300,000 visitors through. Mm-hmm. That, was year, my, that was one of my questions. I'm jumping yeah. one, but I'll, I'll ask it. Why did you sell at that time? Were you just, uh, you, you, well, I think you said you were offered a money, money you couldn't refuse, is basically yes. it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But what it, what it was, I mean, even though, um, even though we built it, we did. It, we did all the work to get it open. We, we weren't rich. And so we were minor shareholders in the whole thing. So we had a corporation that owned half of it, 50%, and then there were a couple of other local businessmen who put money in. And, and they, weren't, they weren't really interested in the Beatles. They just wanted money. You know, they weren't in it like we were for the love of it. Um, and then a company, Mersey Travel, who who ran the Mersey Ferries, they, they made us a big offer in 2008. I didn't want to sell, Bernie and I, we didn't want to sell because we were getting dividends every year. Yeah. And we'd started it. We didn't want to sell. But because you're minority shareholders... The other shareholders can take you to court and make you sell. (laughs) So we didn't want to go to court. And um, and so we 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 did a deal and um, we we all sold out. Probably was a, a wise decision in the end. I mean, it's like you can't run it forever, and you know, no, why not no. be paid for all your labors? So, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And and we're we're very happy with yeah. the people who are running it today. Yeah. Uh, there's a really good team in the Beatles story, and of course, they've. We are now because we've written the book. 
they said, oh, great, you've got to launch the book here. And um, and so, so you know, everything's fine. The Beatles store, I, mm-hmm. I think now, now that the pandemic's over, the, the people are going to come back. <laughs> when, when we were preparing for the launch yeah. to 10 days ago, we were down there, you know, talking. I, t- I turned around in the entrance and there was 100 people queuing to get in. I said, wow, <laughs> that's all right. Yeah. We have the cruise ships coming into Liverpool now. Um, oh. they we are within walking distance from the ship. They don't have to get taxis or anything like that. They can tours out of town if they wish to, but they can walk across to the Albert Dock quite easily. Very good. So it's uh, in the right place. And, and the other nice thing is in the book, Bernadette's got some of her personal memorabilia, which is which is unique. You know, it's never been seen before. So that, that's there in the book as well. Yep. And that's from your hoarding. <laughs> I have one more basic question about it. Well, um, so since you've sold it, I mean, well, in the book, you have like a tour of all the different rooms and how it was constructed and everything like that. But has the exhibit changed much since you sold it or is it pretty much the same as what you had when you were running it? Yeah, certain things have changed because uh, mainly because of the volume of people. Oh. are coming through Um, we we everything was uh quite not claustrophobic but was small at the entrance to get to get in because we wanted to create very quickly people to go back in time Mm -hmm. so first section was all about liverpool in the 40s the shipping the second section was the influences on the beatles you know on film um and then you went into our first real set which was hamburg and what's what's unfortunately what's happened they've had to remove all the early part to actually get enough people. to get the people through oh, wow. they haven't, uh, <laughs> um they we've, they've added memorabilia since we went which is what we were going to do anyway we wanted to get established then we would increase memorabilia when when we had the money to buy so there's some nice very nice memorabilia in there now some lovely collections of john photographs um there's there's the piano from the the record plant in new york city that john played on mm-hmm. you Things like that. There's some nice stuff. George's first guitar. There's, yeah, there's, so there's so much to do in there. You can really immerse yourself into the, the early Beatles Liverpool. And it's also languages. Because we had so many visitors from different parts of the world, they had to have a way, and we couldn't have it all on boards in every language, obviously. So they had to have a sound system where they could listen to the story and it be translated into their own language which a lot of museums are doing now, you know. But internationally, you know, we had so many different countries coming that they have to, you just put your earphones on and um, press whichever language you wish to mm-hmm. hear the story. But the, a lot of the boards are still there. And, uh, but it's, it, you can go through in your own time now. And there's a cafe there and a shop, of course, with, with <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, it's just, well, it's developed the way we'd hoped it would, I think. I guess it's good because if you're a repeat visitor, it's a good thing that it kind of changes over time. So it's not the yeah. exact same show every time you go yeah. through. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Um, one one story uh, that was really amazing, and this ties into Charles Rosene, of course, uh, our friend, uh, our mutual friend, um, that he loaned out Lenin's Im immigration paper for the tribute room called the White Room at the end of the exhibit. And uh, the fascinating thing is he had the original on display for a number of years and then decided to switch it out. I mean, you could say yeah. the rest of the story, but <laughs> yeah, what, what happened, Mark? You know, as you know, Charles Rosney would come to the Beatles convention every year with a group of American visitors and do Abbey Road and then come to Liverpool and have three mad days. And we became very friendly because I used to compare the Beatles conventions, and that's how I met Charles. And you know, so Charles, you know, loved the exhibition. And um, he said, Mike, I've got this very, very special piece of memorabilia. It's John's fingerprints. Mm. Would you like to put it in the exhibition? And I said, yeah, that would be great. And what happened was I, I was terrified that they would get stolen. Mm. And after they'd been up a couple of weeks, I said to Bernadette, I'm not going to be responsible for these. So I got them professionally copied and I swapped the original for this amazing forgery <laughs> reproduction. And that was up there. And within a week, it was stolen. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of enclosed, you see. The white yeah. room was enclosed. And um, was I glad that I took the originals out. So the next time I saw Charles, I said... Charles, thank you, but you can have them back. <laughs> and, and I think you probably know the Charles story with the fingerprints. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> so we, we've, been, we've been very lucky with meeting um, the right people, the right people um, like, like Mark, uh, sorry, like, like Charles, <laughs> but also a guy in Dallas called Mark Nabashek, who, when we did Beatle City there, he and a couple of other Beatle freaks, um, they actually loaned us loads of memorabilia as well. And we've, st we've, stayed, we've stayed friendly with Mark as well, you know, and his, his stuff's in his stories in the book. Very good. Well, that's pretty much all I had for questions. It was a fascinating read. And, you know, I do have to get out to the exhibit. I always tell this to Charles. I said, you know, I never have any money. But one of these days I'll break down and make the trip with him. You should come on one of his trips. Yeah, yeah, you must come on one of Charles's. No, that's what I want to do. So, um, you, do. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, 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 the, it was the pandemic that kind of delayed things. Because this is during yeah. the pandemic that we became friends. I knew of, of him years ago from his good day sunshine fanzine and i knew we did these trips but yes. i was really really dirt poor those years so i just said well that's a fantasy for the future well the future is yeah. now so yeah. <laughs> sounds like a good title for a song Matt. Yeah. <laughs> um yes. did, you, <laughs> did you have any other final statements or thoughts about uh, the show or did you want to plug anything or how do you pick up this book uh, I'll, I'll give the floor to both of you and you could just kind of uh say how they can get in contact you if they have any questions yeah. where to get the book and all that stuff well, we, we are, I mean, we're obviously very proud of the exhibition and uh, we're very, we're very pleased that we, we have got this book out. It's a hardback book. It's, you know, it's a, it's a lovely looking book. It's been, been printed and, 
designed very nicely, you know, we're very pleased. Um, and so it's, if you're in Liverpool, you buy it at the Beatles story, but if you're out of Liverpool, if you're anywhere in the world, you, you go to your local main bookstore. Mm-hmm. You get it from any main bookstore or, of course, Amazon. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, um, I want to thank you, uh, Mike and Bernadette Byrne, for being my special guest today on the Fun Ideas podcast. And sure. it was a pleasure talking to both of you. And I hope if you have uh, time in your life to do yet another Beatle book, if there's any stories that didn't make it into the first one, you know, please do. You know, it was a very fun read. <laughs> oh, we, we need a documentary now. Yeah, yeah. That's perfect. Yeah, Charles would probably love to do that. I'll narrate, I'll narrate. That's Charles. You know? <laughs> yeah. well, thank, you, thank you. Thank Mark. you so much. Yeah, thank you. Best wishes to it, all your listeners. Yeah, it's great to you. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Mike and Bernadette Byrne, for being my special guests. Remember, you can always watch the video version of this episode on YouTube. Episode number 165 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2022. Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night.